This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Hello, my name is Stephanie Creary, and I'm an assistant professor of management at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm delighted to welcome you to today's episode of the Knowledge at Wharton Leading Diversity at Work podcast series, which is focused on uncovering culture in the workplace. Joining me today are two very special guests. First, we have Kenji Yoshino, who is the Chief Justice Earl Warren Professor of Constitutional Law at NYU School of Law and the Faculty Director of the Meltzer Center for Diversity, Inclusion, and Belonging at NYU. He specializes in constitutional law, anti-discrimination law, and law and literature. In 2013, Professor Yoshino and Deloitte published a landmark study, Uncovering Talent, to surface the organizational challenges of covering. This research and the topic of today's podcast draw on the insights from Professor Yoshino's 2006 book, which is called Covering, the hidden assault on our civil rights. And we'll talk a lot more about covering what that means, what it looks like, who does it in just a few moments. But I'd like to also introduce our second guest today. Next, we have Joanne Stefan, who is executive director of Deloitte's DEI Institute. For more than 25 years, Joanne has worked with C-suite executives to define, design, and operationalize their workforce experience vision. She helps clients transform their talent in HR organizations and their strategy through implementation and beyond to achieve sustainable results. Joanne also leads Deloitte's US HR Strategy and Solutions Talent Group in the HR Transformation Service offering and is the Chief DEI Officer of Deloitte's US Human Capital Practice. Welcome, Kenji and Joanne. So delighted to have you with me today for a conversation on uncovering culture. So this is the title of a, of a new report that was just released that you both co-authored. Um, and it's in collaboration with the Meltzer Center for Diversity, Inclusion, and Belonging at NYU School of Law and, and Deloitte. And so I, I actually just want to start us off by talking about this concept of covering. And I think a good way to enter into it is to turn to Kenji to tell us a little bit about uh, the genesis of this research. Uh, for him, I, I know of the work from the book uh, covering in 2006. But can you just give us a brief definition of what covering means, who does it, and just a couple of insights um, that you had in 2006 that perhaps evolved to 2013? Yes, absolutely. So first of all, Stephanie, I want to thank you so much uh, for having us on today. Uh, you're uh, such a star in the field, and I have huge admiration for you. So it's such an honor and privilege to be with you. So to begin, actually, the Law Review article, and no one reads Law Review articles, but you know, I, I have to say that the Law Review article version of Covering was published in 2002. So this idea has now been kicking around for a couple of decades. Uh, you're right that it sort of made its way into the mainstream with the 2006 book. In that book, I defined covering as a strategy through which individuals with known outsider identities you know, uh, modulate or edit their identities in order to blend into the mainstream. 
So what would examples of this be? This is the you know black individual who straightens her hair so that she'll be seen as more professional. Uh, this is a gay man who says, I'm not gonna bring my uh, same-sex partner to a work function because that will increase the salience of my sexual orientation. This is a veteran who doesn't challenge the anti-military joke and the elevator, lest he be seen as overly militant or strident. This is a woman who doesn't talk about her childcare responsibilities at work, lest she be seen as an inauthentic or less committed uh, worker. I think really importantly, just uh, so that your viewers know that we'll catch them here, uh, oftentimes what people get puzzled about is what the difference between covering and passing is. I think we all know what passing is, where you're literally hiding your identity. And it's a question that we get so often that we have loaded it into uh, the paper uh, at the outset. And we say, when you're passing, people literally don't know that you belong to a particular group. When you're covering, people know that you belong to the group, either because you're unable or unwilling to hide your membership in the group. But they nonetheless put uh, pressures on you to downplay or edit or mute that identity so that they can be more comfortable around you. So to get to the last piece uh, of the question, you know, what are the differences between 2013 and uh, study uh, issued uh, just uh, this week? So in 2013, I had this really kind of magical collaboration uh, with Deloitte where uh, they uh, came to me. I said, I should say you, Joanne, and your colleagues came to me and said, you know, you have crunched a lot of cases in your uh, book. Uh, but you're not an empiricist, like we can help. We have a huge kind of age cap uh, practice. We have data analytics teams, like we'll put our money where our mouth is, like we'll push this out, right, to our own uh, clients. We'll design the survey with you. And so we collaborated on this and it was wonderful because really the world of many individuals who are listening to this podcast, the world of the Fortune 500 or the AMLA 100, are not gonna react to anything unless it's backed by hard data, right? And so I think that that was a signal you know, advance, right, that we made in uh, 2013. With this paper in 2023, we delved into a lot of nuances that we can talk about. We looked at intersectionality, we looked at uh, the ways in which white men, sort of dominant cohorts, you know, tended to cover. We also leaned heavily into solutions, like what the heck do we do about this, right, and came up with three sort of programmatic uh, ways in which people could fight right, the covering demands within the organization. So I would say that this paper is, again, a kind of exponential advance uh, over the last one and uh, the nuance and the practicality right, of its approach. I love the marrying together the idea of like this brilliant theory. And I actually did read, I read the law review paper. I do remember reading. Surprisingly, Stephanie, we did that in that regard. I read the theoretical take on it. I also read the book, um, which you know has these wonderful illustrative examples and a framework that I think is is very accessible to to people who are non academics. Um, certainly followed uh, the two, 2013 work. I've actually uh, and related pieces that you published with Deloitte or Deloitte collaborators in Harvard Business Review have had my students read those for required reading, and so I was so delighted. Um, when the note came across my inbox that you all were releasing this new study in 2023. So, of course, I've poured through that. But before we get into the details of that, I just want to turn to you, Joanne, and, and help you to understand for Deloitte, I mean, probably also for you personally, what was the goal behind this 2023 study? What were you attempting to study or understand that you didn't quite get uh, from the pre prior collaboration with Kenji? Thank you. Um, 
Well, first, I want to acknowledge that it's great to, you know, get this group back together um, uh, with you and uh, Kenji um, when we last connected at the CDEIO forum in June. So really great yeah. to, get to talk again. Um, last time I asked the questions, this time you're asking the questions. So it's, it's great to be on the other side of that. Um, and so, as Kenji said, our 2013 research introduced the concept of covering into in the corporate context. Mm -hmm. and was for organizational leaders to understand what covering is. Um, when we approached the 10-year anniversary uh, of the of release of the Uncovering Talent, the original paper, we were curious, you know, about, you know, what extent uh, to which workers still cover? Are they covering in the same ways? Um, what impact would this have on them? You know, what impact does it have on the organizations that they work for? Um, and, you know, especially in context of thinking of, belonging as one of the outcomes that we aim for. Um, so we also recognize that um, our perspectives on identity and the ways those identities shape us are even more nuanced today. And so previously we looked at gender, race, age, sexual orientation, to name a few. Um, but we really wanted to explore with greater intentionality and ask our respondents specifically about the additional identities that they have. Um, and how that shapes the way they you know, navigate the world. So a few of those include caregiver status, education level, immigration status, mental health status, um, military status, religious affiliation, socioeconomic status. And so you can see how those, um, those uh, let's say, uh, more invisible identities would mm -hmm. still influence how you show up you know, with other people and um, at work. Yeah. So, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, this is really interesting and really important. I think about, um, you know, the ways in which we often talk about social identity differences, particularly here in the U.S., the ones that we tend to talk about first or mention are things that we assume, even though our assumptions can be wrong, we assume to be the case based on what we see. And certainly you all can attest to this as much as I can in my own research. In the last 10 years or so, we've seen a lot of push often from our employees, our clients, right, our students to talk more about the things that we couldn't guess um, uh, just from looking at someone. And, and I think about a lot mental health as being one of these um, areas of difference that I would say the people who I speak to, whether we're talking about students or workers, are increasingly interested in making sure that it's aligned with how we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And certainly as we think about what are the implications of our culture and the way that we do things in our culture for people who are um, you know, wrestling with, but also navigating those very types of identity differences. So I can imagine that that was a, quite a rich conversation you all had as you were trying to think about how to broaden some of the work, yes? Absolutely. It also gave us the opportunity to look at the impact of intersectionality. So the more, uh, let's say, marginalized identities you um, have, you know, what might that covering look like or what would the incidence of covering be? Um, and really focus also on, um, you know, what it would take, as, as Kenji said earlier, to reduce the demand for covering coming yeah. from organizations. So we got to dive into quite a bit of that. Yeah, okay. All right, so let's dive a little bit more deeply into the report. And Joanne, I'm gonna come back to you. And I want you to tell us a little bit about the study 
how is it conducted? It's just some of the logistics so people can understand how we move from this sort of big, big, broad idea around covering to, to as Kenji put it, the, the empirics of it. What did that look like? Of course. Um, so first, we were incredibly grateful to get to work with Kenji again and with his colleague, uh, David Glasgow, um, to collaborate on this re-exploration uh, of this topic. So Deloitte's DEI Institute, you know, the, the organization that I, I lead um, with my colleagues is committed to providing data-driven insights backed by sound research methodology. And really, we want to do that to, you know, speak to our business audience to help transform beliefs and behaviors. So we engage a third-party research vendor to survey um, 1,269 full and part-time adult workers over 18 in five uh, primary industries. And the sample was further weighted to be representative of all adult workers in the U.S. to allow us to draw the inferences, you know, regarding the population as a whole. Um, so the quantitative and the qualitative insights we highlighted in the report really give us a deeper understanding of what covering looks like in the workplace, how it feels, um, you know, how it manifests, if you will, and the effects on not only individuals, but really what the cost is to the organization. Great, great, great. Um, Kinji, okay, so I, I poured you this report. There's lots of good stuff in there. I will share what I thought was particularly um, interesting to me as I've followed your insights on covering for more than the last 10 years, but I want to hear from you as the person who's been, um, you know, thinking about this concept the longest, um, what insights did you gain? Like what were two to three key things that stood out to you as being, oh, that's interesting and different. And this made it feel like the 2023 report added something beyond what we've previously done. Yeah, so the biggest shift, I think, would be one in kind of gestalt between the 2013 and the 2023 report. And I think that's reflected in the title. So the 2013 report is called Uncovering Talent, and the 2023 report that was just released is called Uncovering Culture. And that reflected, you know, the team's view that, you know, without meaning to, focusing on uncovering talent really put the onus on the individual within these organizations and focused on their covering performances. And what we believe is that it's less productive to focus on people's covering behaviors mm -hmm. and much more productive to uh, think about it in terms of the covering demands uh, that are placed by the organization on those individuals. So the biggest kind of insight and aha for me was really shifting the lens and saying it's not up to individuals, the least empowered people in these exchanges to transform right, the culture that they're working in. It's actually up to the organizations themselves. So it's a really important shift. I won't say that we were totally uh, careless or insouciant about that in the 2013 report, but we were insistent about keeping uh, the lens steadily on the organization throughout this report. All right. Some of the things that come to mind are the intersectional point that uh, Joanne mentioned. So uh, I always think about uh, my fellow law professor, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw's uh, work here because she uh, really drove the idea of intersectionality uh, into diversity and inclusion discourse. And the idea there is that if you belong to one, uh, more than one, I should say, subordinated identity, then uh, the whole of that subordination can be greater than the sum of its parts. She, you know, true to her law background, first analyzed this in uh, court decisions where she looked at class actions that Black women were bringing. And she discovered that judges were really bad at ascertaining that that discrimination was happening because they would go axis by axis. They would say, 
are, is there discrimination on the basis of race? No, because some black men have made it. Is there discrimination mm -hmm. on the basis of gender? No, because some white women have made it. End of case, right? Uh, whereas the people who are being left out in the cold in that analysis are black women. And so the idea of uh, intersectionality was born. So it's a very intuitive, you know, today obvious idea, but it's still been uh, kind of under theorized in multiple domains. Here, what we really did was to drill down, not just into axis by axis analysis, as the 2013 analysis did, but to rigorously look at intersectional effects. So to just give one startling data point from the study, if you look at Black LGBTQ plus individuals, 100% of our respondents who belong to that cohort uh, reported covering, which was greater than either the Black cohort or the LGBTQ plus cohort, you know, generally, right? And so I think that we have a really good sort of set of proof points about the power of intersectional analysis uh, in this domain as well. Yeah, and finally, in terms of key insights, I would say that the solution set, which Joanne also mentioned, is really robust. You know, if you go back to the 2013 paper, there's a kind of shrug emoji, frankly, at the end. And I'm not, again, going to apologize for that. We didn't want to get ahead of our skis. You know, we didn't have solutions that we felt confident about offering. Here, you know, in the intervening decade, like Deloitte as an organization, I and my own research have tested solution after solution after solution. And we coalesced around these three solutions of diagnose, allyship, and share your story that we're very, very confident provide the tools for organizations to redress uh, the covering demands that uh, their people are placing on their uh, employees. The final thing that I say, uh, because uh, I know I'm talking at Wharton uh, and, you know, your dear, uh, my dear friend and uh, your colleague, you know, Stu Friedman is uh, one of the drivers of this, is that, you know, I, I also noticed that uh, there are these generational differences in how much people perceive uh, covering. So, you know, Stu's point about this is that younger people are like unionized as a generation around the idea of authenticity. And so we hope that this concept will resonate uh, with this uh, cohort. We do think that, you know, this is a moment where um, who's, where the idea of covering, uh, it's time really has come, right? Because I think uh, the rising generation of individuals for one click or two below even you, you know, Stephanie, are, are really sort of adamant about the fact that they want to bring more of their selves, more of their passions, more of their authentic authenticity to the workplace. So um, super, super interesting stuff. I want to come back, though, to a point that you were making earlier, and, and I don't want it to get lost because I think it's important. Um, and part of this, I think, feels personal to me uh, because it also reflects the evolution in my own research agenda. And by that, I mean, when I started off being interested in organizational behavior scholarship, it was all about what can I as an individual do to navigate this workplace with my multiple identities and convince my manager that this was meaningful to them. And at some point, I cannot remember exactly what happened, but at some point I'm like, why is the onus completely on me to figure out how to navigate this place as somebody who doesn't make decisions herself? Um, but I think the interesting tension that I have found, especially among more junior scholars or, or younger people is this wanting to have a sense of agency and create my experience in my organization combined with the very real understanding that practices and policies are created by people who are not me. And I'm not the only one who plays into culture. So I just want to just talk a little bit more about 
this, you know, it's an opportunity, but it's also a tension between your own personal agency and how you navigate who you should be, but then there's this organization that sort of exists outside of you when we're talking about this topic of covering. How, what do you make of that? Yeah, I think I can thread that needle and I'll begin with uh, a story after the book was published where a colleague of mine said, you know, can we go out to coffee so I can tell you what I hate about your book? And I was like, great, you know, that's always the coffee that I want to have. So we had that coffee. <laughs> he said, what I hate about your book is that it gives people more tools to psychoanalyze me in inappropriate ways. So if I act in kind of butch, kind of quote unquote masculine ways, you know, at uh, the law school as a woman, uh, then people are going to assume that I'm covering, whereas I'm just being my authentic self, right? Mm -hmm. And so you've given people another lens through which to look at me that I find affirmatively help, uh, unhelpful and uh, diminishing of my personhood and my, my authenticity. And I gave her the same answer that I began to give to you, Stephanie, which is to say, if we take the lens off of the individual and put it on the organization, I think that helps a lot. And that shift entails uh, like stopping uh, questioning uh, individuals covering behaviors and starting to look at the organization's covering demands. So with regard to this female colleague, I'm kind of like how you choose to comport yourself as your business. But if the institution is saying to you, if you wanna be accepted here, you better behave in more stereotypically masculine ways and be as like careless and analytical and aggressive as a stereotypical man if you want to be accepted in this workplace. And I would say that's a kind of demand that I would want to challenge. And I think ultimately it resolves the tension that you were describing, because if the culture is attentive to its covering demands and withdraws them, that actually expands the space in which you or I or she, right, can bring their authentic selves to the workplace because they're no longer constrained with meeting that covering demand. So we're actually able to engage in behaviors that are authentic to us, whether or not they comport with, you know, stereotypes that people have about the groups that we belong to, because the organization has made a self-conscious effort to retire those demands. Very helpful. Thank you so much for creating greater clarity around that. And, and I think, you know, what I walk away from this is feeling is that it's not an either or, right? There, there, there's an interplay and there's a dance between us and our organizations. And, you know, we have to ensure that there is some thought given to what the organization is doing to shape people's willingness or unwillingness to show up in their authentic ways in as much as we're thinking about our individual choices around that. That's sort of what I'm taking away from that. Uh, Joanne, so you've, you've been knee deep in this data and this report. Um, what are your favorites, your favorite key aspects, insights that you, that you would like to share with us as we um, dive in ourselves? Sure. I'll, um, I'll pick up on, on, Kenji's first key insight around intersectionality. Um, in addition to having all of our Black LGBT respondents say that they cover, 93% of Black workers with a disability cover. Mm. And when we looked at gender, a much higher proportion of Black women at 80% and Asian women at 86% cover than Black men at 43% and Asian men at 55%. So just even within the you know um, race and ethnicity categories, the other um, finding that was really intriguing to me and, and I found interesting was the finding around white men. So 54% of white men cover along traditional lines of marginalization. So 
you know, either mental or physical disability, age, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, as we would expect. Mm -hmm. um, but they also uh, reported, and we found in some of the um, qualitative uh, feedback, they, they cover along historically advantaged identities. Wow. So they do cover for race and gender and religious affiliation based on the idea that these identities are now disfavored, right? Mm -hmm. So of course, um, historically, uh, we can imagine why, um, and, and based on what's been happening, you know, in, in our working lifetimes, um, why they might think, oh, you know, perhaps I should downplay these aspects of myself. Um, so the, the, the fact is white men continue to hold many advantages. Um, mm -hmm. And I feel like I'm saying something obvious, but let's just put some data behind that. So the senior leadership ranks of corporate America are disproportionately white and male relative to that group's population, share of the population. So mm -hmm. in 2023, 74% of the CEOs at Fortune 50 companies are white men, despite that group comprising just 30% of the US population. But this is an improvement, right? This is progress. In 1980, all of the CEOs of the Fortune 50 were white men. So um, what we learned and what we saw was that as organizations work to address root causes of inequities, um, as organizations work to address root causes of inequities, some white men might experience this decline in advantage as a disadvantage. Sure. Really, it's bringing things more in line with, you know, uh, the actual uh, proportion of the population. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, very fascinating, interesting. And I remember reading that section that was helping us to, I think, get a little bit more clarity around why um, white men might cover and what they're covering and the fact that they're covering the, the dimensions of their identities that we often see as advantage in the workplace. Um, I thought that was super interesting. Another thing that I thought was super interesting in this report was this concept covering by proxy. Um, and so in the report, it's defined as covering on uh, behalf of someone else. And, and so here's a quote that struck me and I want to read it because I think it helps to provide some context. And then Kenji, I'm going to turn it to you to help us unpack this. But the quote that I think spoke to me was the following from, from one of the people who you collected data on qualitative data on. Um, this is someone who says, um, this is tough to admit, but I do this on multiple fronts. I have one child that is multiracial and outside of work, I'm very vocal and supportive of the issues faced by being a minority, but I tend to only listen and not vocally support the same view at work. This is also true for my transgender child. Again, away from work, I'm very supportive, but I fear that sharing my family struggles with this will isolate me and damage my potential for growth at work. Now, as a human being, that really um, struck me. Uh, it made me feel quite sad, but um, I, I just wanted to just say a little bit more about this covering by proxy and, and certainly, Kenji, why this is problematic. Can you uh, share a little bit more about this topic with us? Yeah, I think that uh, both of these ideas, you know, uh, Joanne's really wonderful point about uh, how the dominant groups are covering their identities, uh, but also this notion of uh, covering by proxy kind of go together in my mind, because I think that we can view it as uh, a kind of uh, place of, of 
attack or we can view it as a place of solidarity. And obviously we want to view it as a ladder. And so what I mean by that is that you could look at, you know, the white man who report um, covering and you can say, oh, this is just like false equivalence. You're comparing your paper cut to my flesh wound. And so I'm just going to discount this. And, you know, we want to put this in context and say, yes, you know, of course, everything that Joanne said was right, right? You know, white men are still vastly disproportionately, you know, overrepresented, you know, say in the Fortune 50 uh, CEO ranks, right? But at the same time, the message that we want to draw from the study is no cohort is immune from the covering demand. So don't make assumptions to go back to what you were saying earlier, Stephanie, of like, you can't just eyeball somebody and say, oh, you like all lights have turned green for you all the way down the highway of life, right? Like nobody is that uh, privileged. We all just as human beings of vulnerability. And once we see that no cohort, even like cishet, you know, straight men, you know, are covering uh, various aspects of our lives, this really becomes a universal project. It isn't like us versus them. And in the wake of the Supreme Court's SFFA decision, like I have to say, as a lawyer, like we're all looking for those universal solutions, the things that don't pit one racial group against another racial group or one gender against another gender or what have you. And I think covering really is that idea of once we see that everyone is covering something uh, and therefore every cohort has an interest and uh, the name of bringing more of their passion and their authenticity to their work right in this uncovering culture uh, project, uh, then uh, the appeal of this can really be universal because it's a rising tide that lifts all boats. I feel really similarly about the covering by proxy notion, which is you could look at somebody who's saying, oh, I don't cover myself, but like I don't talk about my child who is trans or who is multiracial. And you could say, well, that's not a direct harm that you suffer. So I'm not really going to listen to that. That's not a, a particularly salient aspect of this you know, analysis. Or we could approach it in a more open hearted way and to say, like, you know, that is, you know, a form of covering. And if we acknowledge that, what we're really acknowledging is that people are allies, right? People are connected to marginalized communities that uh, they don't belong to themselves and oftentimes have to make really uh, hard decisions, right, about how much to disclose or how, how not to disclose. And uh, there's some suffering, right, involved in being that kind of ally. So again, if we take the more kind of open-hearted, generous approach, this project stops being like us versus them. It stops being like, you're a terrible person because you're straight and you're forcing me to be straight acting as a gay man, right? It's, yeah. it's not really about that. It's like, how can we make this culture better for everyone who inhabits it, right? Including individuals and dominant groups, including people who are uh, covering by proxy, even if they're not directly covering themselves. I think you make a very important point and I, I forget who coined the term, but I often use it when I'm, um, in, in sort of like informal context, and it's called the, you know, the term the oppression Olympics. Uh, so let me know if you remember who, who coined this term. But, you know, we often use this term to talk about marginalized groups. And sometimes it's like my marginalized group is suffering more than your marginalized group. But I started thinking about that term slightly differently, Kenji, based on what you just said is if we can recognize that an unfortunate aspect of the human experience is that a lot of people feel that they are suffering. In fact, I'm sure if you walk down the street and you ask somebody, do they just, is something like challenging for them? I would venture to say that most people feel like there are some challenges that they are facing. And, and while we can, you know, think about perhaps on one level, how someone might have more advantage than we have, I'm not sure we would encounter too many people who said my life is great and it's fine all of the time and I'm never suffering. 
And, and so when I think about what you're saying, and we're thinking about the current context right now, I know so many chief diversity, equity, inclusion officers are struggling in their jobs right now. So they're trying to, you know, drum up support for the continued work on this space. Um, one of the things that I hear you saying, Kenji, which is also the benefit of this covering research is um, sometimes it becomes really important to help us also understand the, the ways in which we all are challenged in our workplaces and to address those. And covering and uncovering, these are um, universal challenges and issues and opportunities that exist in our organization that can create negative impacts for all of us and for all of our organizations. Um, and it is inherently a diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging issue that affects lots of different people, no matter their intersectional or lack thereof experience. So I think I'm gonna take that away with me as I'm listening to people talk about the value of DEI right now and all the legislation and what that means is, is um, sometimes there are issues like covering and uncovering, which uh, we're not addressing that are to everyone's benefit that we talk about more broadly. So with the last few minutes that we have, I just want to get into- Stephanie, I'm so sorry. Can I jump in on that? Because <laughs> an important point that you're raising. If you want to take us to solutions too, Kenji, that would be great because that's where we're going next. That's great. Absolutely. So I will, I will try to be very succinct about this, but this is one of the things that I just, not to embarrass you, Joanne, but really learned a lot from Joanne on of like the importance of keeping both sides of that tension steadily visible and like yeah. not forcing ourselves to choose in between the two of them. Yeah. On the one hand, I want to say, I don't want to participate in the oppression Olympics. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I also don't want to treat all forms of human pain as being completely equal and to fall into the trap of false equivalence. Right. Exactly. So I don't want to say the fact that you had to cover you, the fact that you were a humanities major when you went into the tech company is the same thing as, you know, a black person having to modulate their identity with regard to uh, anti-black prejudice. Right. Those are not the same thing. Right. So how do we keep both notion steadily visible that everyone covers, right? But also that some, this tax is being exacted more heavily on some cohorts than it is on others. And framed in that way, I actually don't think that there is a tension. I think that we can say both things. So saying, yes, everyone covers, this is a universal phenomenon, but also please, just in the name of our common humanity, like please don't engage in false equivalences, right? right? And from a strategic perspective, like I also think that people are much more able to hear. I think a lot of the ressentiment on the part of dominant groups. And, you know, as a man, I, I can speak to this is, you know, the, the notion of if you don't recognize, if you if you treat me like, you know, everything has been great in my life and like I have no forms of vulnerability whatsoever, I'm going to bristle at that, right? Mm -hmm. But if you can acknowledge in this universal way of like we all as human beings have vulnerabilities, that's going to open a conversation rather than mm -hmm. close it down. And I'm mm -hmm. much more likely to be able to hear that I may be engaging in false equivalences by treating the various kind of slings and arrows that I've suffered in my life uh, to mm -hmm. somebody else's experience. So I think we need to keep both truths deadly visible. Yeah. Everyone, every cohort covers, uh, and this tax is assessed of everyone, but it is not assessed evenly across cohorts. We, can, we have data-backed ways and saying, you know, people of color, women, LGBTQ plus individuals have uh, much higher rates of covering than uh, the general population. So this is something that was so, such a productive conversation uh, with uh, between our team and Deloitte's team. And, and I think we landed in a really good place and I just wanted to communicate that. Now with regard to solutions, which I also yeah. think, as I mentioned earlier, the, the kind of 
really one of the, the kind of marquee contributions of uh, this study. So as I said, the 2013 study, again, I make no apologies for this, that's where we were at the time, was very thin on solutions. So here we have three solutions that we are offering as a way of moving a, a covering culture into uh, a culture of where individuals can uncover. So the first one is diagnose, and this isn't just identifying the phenomenon, although that's really important. Before we uh, had the term unconscious bias and hammered it into our public vocabulary, we couldn't do anything about it, so too with covering. But I just want to say that it's not just diagnosing like the fact that you're covering along our four axes of appearance, affiliation, advocacy, or association, and the definitions are all in the paper. I won't detain us here with that. But it's also saying, like, if you do cover, does it hurt? Because some people are like what we imagine Margaret Thatcher to be. That's our kind of go-to example. Like she was forced into go voice coaching to scrub her working class accent and to lower the timbre of her voice uh, so that she exuded more gravitas. But she never complained about it. So we can imagine a lot of people who say like, oh, yeah, I was asked to cover, but no harm, no foul. It was just what I needed to do to get to the next level of my career. And I didn't experience it as a privation. To the, extent of it, to the contrary, I experienced it as constructive feedback. So if you're covering, but it's not harmful, then, you know, you're one of the lucky ones, like no further action required, right? Even if you're covering and it hurts, we still want you to ask the question of like, is the covering demand backed by an organizational value, right? So oftentimes we're asked, are all forms of covering bad? Like if I show up at Wharton or I show up at, at Deloitte and I'm rapidly obnoxious and you say, knock it off. And I say, this is my authentic self, deal with it, right? That's mm -hmm. not going to get very far, right? And so we have to come to the conclusion that some forms of covering are beneficial, right, uh, to the smooth functioning of an organization. So how do we winnow out the good from the bad forms? Our answer is organizational values. So if you can back with a neutral organizational value, the fact that you don't want people to be obnoxious in the workplace, it's a kind of silly example, but you get where I'm going, then you're mm -hmm. fine. But oftentimes what we find in our research is that people are being asked to cover in ways that would kind of horrify the organization at a higher level of generality. So gay people are being told, be straight acting or, you know, don't work on gay rights issues, right? If you want to be a member of this organization and the organization thinks of itself as pro-LGBTQ+, and is horrified when it's confronted by uh, the mismatch between the ideals that it purports to live under and the ideals that it's actually living up to. So diagnose is that first bucket. The second bucket is to be an active ally. Uh, and this sort of draws on the general research that we know. This is Heckman and Johnson. This is kind of your neck of the woods, Stephanie, mm -hmm. uh, sort of organizational psych, right? But this is the allies are much more effective at intervening uh, with regard to all issues of bias and affected parties themselves. So you're much less likely to take a hit uh, in terms of your reputation. You're much more likely to be listened to if you come in as an ally rather than if you are uh, the person directly targeted or affected. So it's a broad spectrum antibiotic. It works for a lot of DNI issues, but it also works for covering. So you know, if, you know, a Latinx individual walks in late for a meeting and someone says, oh, I see you're on Latino time, then I'm going to be much more effective as someone who doesn't belong to that community stepping in and saying, in a smart, sort of hopefully effective, sensitive way, you know, saying, you know, I, I don't, you know, think that that was a helpful comment. I don't need to drag the affected person into it, but I can say I, as someone who um, invested in inclusive culture, was troubled by that comment. Could you please explain or rephrase? And I'll be much more effective in intervening from the side as an ally then I will be as the affected person. So if we all do that for each other, we're going to get much further right? and combating covering demands that if everyone is forced to deal with the covering demands that are directed at them. 
And the final solution, which I have to admit is my favorite, is share your story. And we open with stories of our own, you know, covering experiences and what we covered as co-authors of the study. So my executive director, David Glasgow, uh, Joanne's, you know, colleagues, Heather and Samine, uh, all write their stories because we thought we have to pony up here and model uh, what we're trying to ask of people. And it's not a huge lift. Uh, these are stories that, you know, are not like too much information stories, but they nonetheless color outside the bounds of a traditional resume, right? And so we say it's really important when you're introducing yourself to an internal, external audience, particularly if you're a leader, to say something that shows your humanity beyond your uh, traditional work credentials. Mm -hmm. And just as importantly, in these kind of infinite but infinitesimal moments, like you can share in ways that are not like set pieces, but like offhand grace notes or comments that say, I'm leaving work to go to my daughter's soccer game, right, rather than not giving a reason or lying about it and saying, I'm leaving work to go to a client meeting or to go to my own doctor's appointment or something that is seen to be more acceptable in a traditional workplace. It's by pushing against those kind of daily uh, norms, right, that we can actually create the space by sharing the stories for other people to share their stories with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for those really practical tips, Kenji. Joanne, I want to close out with you. Uh, managers and non-managers, I like to refer to, I know as Deloitte does as well, non-managers as individual contributors. But can you give us a couple of tips for managers and individual contributors as we're thinking about the implications of what you all found in this study? Uh, sure. Uh, so um, with regard to leaders and managers, as Kenji mentioned, our um, you know, recommendation is that they create the environment or foster you know, psychological safety um, mm -hmm. where they have influence in order to um, enable uncovering. And a very effective way to do that is to start with your own uncovering or um, at minimum to help others understand you know, that it is acceptable um, for them to uncover and that their identity is accepted and, and appreciated and everything that comes with that. Um, and so, you know, workers uh, believe that um, their leaders uh, create psychological safety. Our respondents said at about 50%. Mm -hmm. And they also believe that leaders actually want their authenticity. That's at about 61%. I'll say, I think we can do better than that, um, mm -hmm. certainly. Uh, and, um, you know, when we are able to um, be active allies, regardless of our role, I think that that makes a significant difference. So um, when I think about um, my experience, I'll, I'll give an example. Uh, so <clears throat> I was, you know, up for partner at the firm and, um, you know, sort of navigating my way through that. That's a difficult uh, and, and a very big uh, milestone. And I had a coach working with me and he said to me that, his leader, his manager was holding him accountable for my success or basically holding us accountable for our joint success. Mm -hmm. And that was a turning point for me in our relationship and also how I showed up, you know, because a couple of things. One, it signaled to me that, you know, who I was and the way I showed up, you know, was not only acceptable, but valued. Um, but also, you know, when I sort of prodded him on and I said, well, yeah, she wants you to help me and all that. She's like, he's like, no, no, she's holding me accountable. So maybe you think you're out in the middle of the lake in the rowboat by yourself rowing and I'm on the shore waving at you and wishing you good luck. No, we're both in the boat and we're rowing together. We're in it together. Yeah. And my reaction was to say, oh, 
all right, well, then I can tell you what's really going on, <laughs> you know, yeah. because before I wasn't sure and I wasn't sure that I was safe, but because this colleague um, was able to signal that, you know, it was safe to be myself and I was being accepted and valued, then I was able to uncover. Um, uh, for other individuals, you know, in active allyship, as um, Kenji mentioned, you know, standing up or showing up for others, particularly those that don't share that particular identity, um, makes the most difference. I, I know that, you know, you've seen in your work where, you know, people who, um, let's say, are show up for or stand up for those who share an identity um, are both, you know, lose, both lose credibility. But when we show up for those who are um, of a different identity, you know, that makes a real difference. And so I had someone <laughs> remind me the other day, um, we were talking about what active allyship looks like. And he said, you don't have to be white to be an ally, <laughs> which is, you know, sounds obvious, of course. But what that means is that we can all be active allies to each other, regardless of our role, regardless of our level. If we show up for each other, if we make the space and we signal um, in obvious and, and subtle ways that, you know, this is acceptable and this is valued, then that gives all of us the courage to show up and demonstrate, you know, who we really are and, you know, counteract the negative impacts of covering within the organization. Absolutely. Great, great stuff, Joanne and Kenji. This report is wonderful. Um, I hope everyone reads it, Uncovering Culture. It is available everywhere, but where can people access it besides everywhere if they want to get a, a copy of that? Well, we can certainly link to it in the article that we publish, but is there uh, a good Googleable term that we should send people to? Certainly Google Uncovering Culture. A few other things might show up. I'm not going to lie. But the easiest way to get to it is, you know, www.deloitte.com slash US slash uncovering. Excellent. And you'll have access to everything we have there. Excellent. All right. Um, it's a good read. It's not too academic. It has the right balance of empirics. And I think people who are in organizations and, and certainly researchers like myself who are always looking for ways to sort of frame practical issues um, in academic ways will find this uh, beneficial as well. So I want to thank you, Kenji and Joanne, for joining us today. Thank you for sharing your insights and your expertise with us. We truly appreciate you for being here. I know the guests or the, the, uh, the listeners, the audience always uh, loves the chance to hear from experts like yourself on these topics that are very, really, really real and salient to them in their daily work lives. Uh, so thank you to the audience for joining us uh, and for listening to this episode of the Knowledge at Wharton Leading Diversity at Work podcast series. Goodbye for now. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.